delighted to be joined by you today. Uh, welcome uh, to our podcast. Uh, how are you doing? Yeah, good day, Adam. How are you doing, mate? Good to uh, be here with you. Now, I understand you're joining us from uh, a rather picturesque location. Where are you at the moment? Yeah, look, we're down here in Hobart at the moment. Uh, just sort of after lockdown last year, it was uh, I think it hit quite a few people down here in Victoria a little bit hard. So we're taking the opportunity just to spend a little bit of time outside of our usual context and um, just explore explore Tassie. Fantastic. Well, it's a beautiful part of the world to to be remote and also to be remotely connected to work. Um, it's an interesting interesting proposition, no doubt. So, so Matt, I'm, I'm interested to have a chat to you today about some of the some of the work that you're doing. Uh, we crossed paths last year. Um, you successfully won two categories in our Urban Developer Awards for Industry Excellence. Uh, something fascinating. Um, about those two projects were the, the sustainability principles that underlied each of those. And so I'm keen today to have a bit of a chat about that. Um, before we do jump into uh, some of your projects, I mean, let's start with the name, Hip V Hype. Can you just explain for those that aren't familiar with your, your organisation, what, what's in that name? Yeah, look, I guess it versus types of a play on words. So truth versus fiction, if you like. Um, so, you know, opposites that are required, I guess, to achieve balance, yin and yang. Um, we're, we're big believers uh, in the idea that, you know, we're, we're very, very much at the heart of our approach is an evidence-based approach. So, so that's the hip, I guess. Um, but, but in our game, I guess if you're, if you're too focused on the facts, on the technical aspects, um, you know, perhaps, perhaps in that there, there, uh, lies a, a lack of exposure, if you like. So that's sort of where the hype comes in. So the storytelling, the, um, the, the ability to get that message out there a little bit. Um, and for us, we're very, very focused on, on balance. Um, you know, having a little bit of both sides of that equation. Um, and that's, that's really what's behind the name. And so as a developer and as a, as an, I guess, an advisor, uh, to others in the property industry, how, how does that apply in your business? That's a really good question. It's it's sort of these feedback loops that are that are set up between the two businesses. So on the one hand, we're out delivering, um, we're exposed to the cold face and the realities of of what it takes to to deliver as a developer. Um, and then on the other side of the equation, we we have our sustainability advisory business. So. What we're constantly trying to do is is create these feedback loops between the two component parts of the business. So our sustainability um, consultants uh, and people within the business, you know, we're actively exposing them to the kinds of decision making frameworks that that you know we're exposed to within the commercial side of the business, and then vice versa, you know, getting our project managers and development managers and and sales team exposed to some of the ideas that the sustainability team are working on. Um, and, and really, it's the the sharing of those ideas that we think you know helps to elevate again both sides of of the business. Mm, it's walking the walk, as well as talking the talk. So um, yep. break down your business for us. How, how do you how do you divide what you guys do at at Hip Verse Hype? Um, look, there's there's three primary focuses to the business. Um, the projects business is a standalone boutique developer. We're, we're aiming to be to, to be at the leading edge of, of what sustainability means within the built environment. Um, uh, so currently working on 
uh, delivering 22 apartments in South Melbourne. We've got another project coming up, which is 28 apartments in Northcote down here in Melbourne. Um, and we're doing a couple of passive uh, townhouses in Brunswick. So really wanting to be at the cutting edge of, of what sustainability means in the built environment. Um, our sustainability consultancy, um, which is primarily an advisory business, um, has two component parts to that business. Um, buildings, specific ASD, so technical engineering side of sustainability. Uh, and then we've got the policy and strategy side of that business. So that's about timescales. Um, and it's an impact-focused business. Uh, so, you know, at the building level, we're probably looking at the 12 to, to five-year time frame, uh, and at the strategy and policy side of the business, we're looking anywhere between five and 30 years. So, recently doing some work on the large um, uh, urban region project down here in Victoria Art and Macaulay as an example. So, looking at what carbon neutrality means for, a, you know, city-scale project over the next 30 years and working with um, state government. Um, and Melbourne City Council on that piece of work. Um, and then the final part of the business is collective work share spaces. So really that's just thinking about what, what the future office looks like um, and, and really, um, you know, getting away from this idea of having a monoculture and surrounding ourselves with, with ideas that are inherent to our business. It's about bringing other businesses with a like-minded goal sort of into our space um, and sharing those ideas. Think, one of the things we're really interested in as a business is breaking down sort of the professional silos that exist between each of the component parts in the, you know, in the delivery pathway within the built environment. So, you know, getting away from this idea that developers are talking to developers and bankers are talking to bankers and architects are talking to architects. It's kind of like, how do we break that down a bit and, and actually get architects talking to bankers and, you know, developers uh, learning from a landscape architect, if you like. You know, it's, that's, we, we think um, in, inherent to that idea is, is, you know, an increased understanding of the expertise of those around us, um, perhaps a little bit, bit more respect on a professional level. Um, and, and um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, these outcomes within the built environment just require such deep levels of collaboration that, um, that, that um, you know, for us, that's, that's a really important idea. It's amazing to hear you say that because, I mean, that's, that's one of the key motivators for us as an organisation is to, is to what we call connect the dots within the industry because there's many industry associations but there's not that many that actually um, connect the whole industry together and share that understanding to get the outcomes that are, are more balanced and more sensible uh, and more considerate of all the different challenges. So, I mean, I, I kind of... I can't, I can only imagine how complex your, your sort of uh, your remit is when you've got a, a developer, an advisory business, and a, and a shared working space all, all within uh, one organisation. Uh, take us back to the, the very start of, of Hipverse Hype. How, how did you get to that position today as a business and as a business model? There's sort of a long answer to that one. It's, um, you know, it, it kind of goes back to, I guess, my my experience over time or where, where I come from, right? Starting at, starting at around the university level, like I kicked off, actually started in art science uh, at Melbourne university, wanting to, you know, wanting to get into medicine. And um, uh, so, you know, I, I had a heavy focus on science through, through sort of school and, and into university, love physics, love maths. And, um, you know, so, so inherent to that is this, you know, desire to, to, to want to understand 
facts, right, and and the technical side of things. Um, I was exposed to architecture uh, through first year uni. I was really glad I was and um, made made the decision to jump across into architecture. And I guess um, architecture is one of those really really great degrees that's really really well rounded. You know, there's there's the maths and science component to how buildings are put together. There's the design side to envisioning something from scratch there's sort of you know the historical side to architecture there's the city side to architecture how buildings kind of influence you know the broader politic i guess of the day you know so it's just this really great really interesting um interesting degree and um for, for me at the time um during the year out we got to we got to spend a little bit of time um out of university and, and through a practical year and I guess um, I've, I've always loved building things. My dad's a builder and always been really interested in this idea of the intersection between construction and, and design. And um, through my year out, I actually had an opportunity to, instead of working in an office, um, gaining architectural experience, I actually kind of worked out on, out on some building sites here in Melbourne as, as a labourer for um, one of the directors of Six Degrees Architects. He was building his house in... Um, in North Melbourne and yeah it was just this really great experience of being able to kind of learn from the guys who were putting the building together on site and it's kind of cool actually because you know it was a higher end build and they all knew that you know I was studying architecture so smoko every day I'd be taken aside by a plaster or a bricky or you know a, a carpenter and kind of talk to about how I should be designing things a little bit differently to make it easier to build or if you want to achieve out this this outcome do it like this not like this and you know things like picking up bits of steel on site right like it's it's um one of the things I remember most is trying to pick this bit of steel up on site uh, a relatively small bit of steel visually and I could hardly get the thing off the ground and it's just like you know that that flashbulb moment of you know all designers should actually have to come out here and pick up a bit of steel to understand how hard this stuff is to work with and that might change actually the way they think about designing with that material right so again that that intersection between theory and design um, and off the back of that uh experience I, I went on exchange over in Copenhagen so um at the Royal Danish Academy of Fine Arts studying architecture and Copenhagen's one of these amazing places this is around 2004 um that just has such a high quality of of you know built form built built environment and such a dedication to design um and and you know first principle based design it's just you know the utopia um at the time less of a spotlight on copenhagen um scandinavia perhaps now significantly more of a spotlight on on what that that area has contributed um but i had had the chance to study under a guy called jan gale who um sort of urban planner um ex-architect kind of heading into the urban planning space and you know if you if for anyone that doesn't know who Jan Gale is, like do, do a little bit of research on the top 10 most livable cities in the world index and you're pretty much guaranteed that that, that Jan's practice has had a, a major role in shaping those cities through time. And you know, he had some really fundamental ideas about um, life between buildings as an example and, you know, the architecture profession's obsession with form and, and, and not enough focus on the user and, and, and how buildings touch the ground and influence the shape of a city. Um, 
for me, that was just a really fascinating, I guess, uh, some fascinating ideas to be exposed to at the time in the context of Copenhagen. And I sort of left that experience wanting to, or coming back to Australia, wanting to understand, you know, how I could better shape the built form outcomes uh, and the quality of the built form outcomes back, back home in Australia. And I guess for me, that was the point at which I jumped um, into the double degree with property and architecture at Melbourne, which was offered at the time. And, and for me, that, that really began my journey away from architecture and, and across to client side um, with, with a development focus, um, really wanting to take what I'd learned in architecture um, around design thinking, right, around first principles-based thought process, uh, why, why are we doing what we're doing, you know, user-focused sort of uh, approaches to the way we think about designing um, uh, engagements, as an example, as a developer, how we think about briefing and setting up teams, having a really good understanding of why we're doing what we're doing, um, came out of that sort of design background. Um, and so that was the beginning of my journey. Look, long story short, I ended up working for a number of private developers uh, in Melbourne through through my career um, uh, and through around about a 10-year career and, and got to the point where I wanted to put, I guess, some of the ideas that I'd had about the potential of a deeply collaborative process, a design thinking-based process um, into practice um, through starting my own business. And the reason I've gone through so much detail in terms of that background is just to kind of highlight that there are some critical points along that journey that, you know, that intersection between theory and practice, the deep understanding that if we want to be building better buildings, that there has to be a closer intersection between, you know, theory and practice. Um, uh, and, a, and a more collaborative process, um, and um, you know, uh, also in, into um, uh, into the potential of bringing some of those ideas into the development world, and, and something as simple as a contractual agreement. Right? There's, you know, there's um, <clears throat> uh, contracts can be drafted in a in a way to set parties off against each other. Or, or they can set, be set up in a way to, um, to, to encourage, encourage more collaborative engagement through time and incentives can be designed in a way to, to create more kind of collaborative engagement over time. And I think um, that, that's a really big part of where I've come from and the, the, the ideas that are inherent to, to Hit versus Hype as a business. I, I think it's so interesting as an observation that, that your business model and the way that you actually operate your business is a is a looks to be a product and a result of your your technical and professional development over the course of what a, de a decade or so even longer i guess um and you can you can see it manifest there which is which is just fascinating um i'm just interested now to then take it from here which is which is your your current business and have a look at then the applied outcomes and that is the development projects that, that you do. Um, maybe just before we jump into a couple of specific projects, do you just want to maybe unpack the portfolio of projects that you've developed and, uh, and give us a sense of uh, exactly what type of projects that you've, you've been able to deliver? Yeah, look, at, at its heart, our, our business is focused on kind of a boutique scale residential project in essence um 
and and very much owner occupier focused. I think um, scale is important, um, and also the idea of an owner occupier focus is important. I think there's two inherent ideas to that. Scale for us, we want to be innovative. It's it's challenging in the context of risk um, uh, and development to innovate at larger scale, genuinely innovate at larger scale, um, I think. So then, you know, at, at smaller scale, smaller amounts of money, um, uh, the kinds of, uh, there's more discretion in, in the process um, ultimately. Um, uh, and the second part uh, with an owner-occupier focus, I guess, you know, it, it reframes, um, I guess, the value settings. So some of the ideas around design and sustainability, um, the value of those ideas are more more connected to the end user. So ultimately, the person that's paying for that product. Um, and and you know, at the end of the day, some of this stuff does does cost more. Right? Like there's sort of get what you pay for at the end of the day. So. Um, you know, you want to be having that discussion directly with the person who benefits, not necessarily having it through, through um, you know, third parties um, that you might be having through, say, more of that investor, investor-driven market. Um, so that, they're, they're really the defining features of, of the projects we're looking for. And so let's jump into the first one. It's called Davison Collaborative and it's three high-performance ESD townhouses. It won... Um, the uh, the best uh, uh, residential category for its size last year at the, the Urban Developer Awards. Just describe it first for those that aren't familiar with that project. Yeah, look, it's it's three townhouses in Brunswick, um, and uh, we we ran that product. The structure of that project is a collaborative development model. We we ran it to put our money where our mouth is. There was lots of talk at the time around Bow Group and, and collaborative development models. We wanted to understand it in detail ourselves. Um, so basically we, we we were one of the three collaborators along with um, Pete, who I started our sustainability business with, and Chris from Archer, the architect. We ran it as a bit of a case study. How, how, does, how do these models work? Um, uh, and how how are these legal structures established in a way that these deals are bankable and what sort of benefits accrue out of approaching development in this way. And, um, you know, for us, we also ran it as a test case in terms of high-performance building. Um, we built the building out of SIPs or the structure out of a, a product called Structs uh, SIPs. It's a structurally insulated panelised system which enabled us to get um, very, very high um, air tightness uh, ratings and and high thermal form performance ratings. Um, we worked with kind of on the system side with Stable working on um, electric heat pumps and and um, ventilation systems, enabling us to take take gas out of the building as an example. So we really kind of pushed a few boundaries on that project. Um, and it's actually an important side of our business. We want those smaller projects at the same time as we're delivering slightly larger boutique scale projects. And, you know, we want to be pushing boundaries and perhaps taking risks that, you know, others might not or or only sort of really, really large businesses with big R&D budgets are able to kind of facilitate. We want to be doing that at a smaller scale. Um, our smaller projects, we kind of want to be significantly ahead of the market in order to bring that learning um, through the different component parts of our business, um, whether that be the advisory business or um, you know, bringing what we've learnt in a in a small three three townhouse project into a twenty apartment project. Um, 
So, I mean, how steep was that learning curve for you? I mean, obviously you've got pretty deep technical understanding. You understand property. You've, you've got a decent design knowledge. Like you, you're ahead of the vast majority of the pack in terms of picking this up. How, how steep was that learning curve? And uh, I guess how just what's your view on how generally accessible it is for uh, the, the, the rest of the industry to adopt some of the things that you learnt through that process? Yeah, look, the, things are moving really, really quickly in this space and it's not, it's not technology uh, that's necessarily holding this space back. The, th- the, the reality is, uh, you know, markets that, that have been operating in the high-performance building space for longer than we have um, have established the technology, right? It's, from our perspective, it's the people factor. So it's the skills on the ground um, and the willingness to think differently at a trade level um, that 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 is the biggest challenge right um uh, on a day-to-day basis you know the guys that are putting these buildings together you know are used to doing things the way they've done things um and a lot of the relationships uh and 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 um and and the way that those kind of businesses are run uh, are geared towards kind of status quo right so that's that, that, that's got to be one of the biggest challenges whenever you're doing something different is kind of managing quality, um, uh, budget and time um, in the context of um, working with something where there might not necessarily, you, you might not, there might only be two subbies in the market that can install one of these systems. So like the price competitiveness is a challenge, right? <laughs> um, if one of them's busy, then then you, you can only get a price off, off another guy. Um, you know, if another guy puts his back out, then you've got to wait six weeks to get the guy who was too busy six weeks ago to come to site to install the system. Um, there's those challenges. Um, it's kind of cool though. I think uh, there's lots of people at our age, particularly in some, in some of these trades, um, that are really pushing themselves to learn these new technologies that are really pushing their businesses. It's, it's been driven by the guys that own these businesses. It's been driven by the, you know, the younger crew that are coming through in these businesses that want to be, you know, that want to be pushing boundaries, that want to be learning new ways of doing things. So I kind of believe, a big believer that the industry is going to move quite quickly, you know, in, in the direction of high-performing buildings. Um, but, yeah, the, the people factor is one of the biggest challenges. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can certainly feel that, you know, COVID and all of the impacts that it created is such a such a significant disruptive shock that everything was on the table in now everything's on the table in terms of the way that we we look at, at, at the production of real estate or production of housing or whatever it may be um, and and you know as they say you never waste a crisis so hopefully there are some fantastic um, fantastic sort of adoption of, of, of more sort of willingness by the industry to, to adopt these things I mean I'm just interested to just while we're on the, the Davison Collective. So you've, you've come together with effectively two friendlies yourselves. You've, you've designed and learnt um, the process of creating a high-performance residential building. Just, just take us through the key component parts of that and then what the result was. The, of the actual building side of it? Yeah, what was different between... Uh, the buildings that, that that you were able to deliver at Davison, and uh, yep. and I guess the, the the rest of the marketplace, uh, and then what what was the result of that too? 
from a one-off perspective, I think that there's really good examples of um, a very, very high-performing homes being built in the Australian market at the moment. There's a question as to um, whether whether those homes are being built to you know co- commercial budgets under under kind of the stresses of commercial kind of constraints, right? Budget and time being the two critical components. So it's one thing to go and build a really Ubute house and for it to take three years and for it to blow the budget by, you know, 50%. That's, that's great, right? So what we wanted to do was, was deliver, you know, three townhouses in a kind of commercial time frame within within a commercially justifiable budget, justifiable budget. We ultimately we were able to do that. Um, we were able to produce um, three townhouses that that had an average NatHERS rating of just over eight stars. Um, uh, we were able to go 100% electric, no gas, um, integrated um, electric heat pump and hydronic heating system, um, sonar batteries in the garage, um, solar panels on the roof, again, integrating the electrical nature of, of, of the systems within the project. Um, and we had the heat recovery ventilation system running as well because when you build to this level of performance, your air change rates diminish and you actually need to mecha- mechanically bring in fresh air, but that gives you the opportunity to filter the air that you bring into the space. Um, so you're getting a healthier built environment essentially and because of the thermal performance of the envelope you're getting a more consistent internal temperature so we lived we lived in one of the townhouses through last year through lockdown and it's kind of cool actually we we try and do that with a lot of our projects we've lived in four projects now that we've built and and it's that process of designing building developing living living feedback loop um, learning from from what you could have done better potentially um, and feeding that into the next project that's a really big part of our process. So, you know, a couple of things we learned from this project um, in a positive is that when you build to this high level of thermal performance, um, internal temperatures stay pretty consistent, like around 22 degrees. Believe it or not, um, even on hot days, it takes quite a while for the house to heat up. one of the really interesting things I learned from a negative perspective is some of these, you know, high-performing glasses that, that are being installed in some of these projects have quite high reflectivity indexes. And when you've got smaller courtyard spaces, they actually start to fry the landscape um, on hot days. So, yeah, we need to start to think about external screening of some of the glass, not necessarily to keep the heat off the glass, but to stop the sun bouncing off and, and frying your plants. Um, so there's just these little bits and pieces that get fed into the next project when we're sitting there with the design team sort of, you know, picking up on this stuff to, to, to make sure that Series 2 is that much better. Mm. It's that feedback loop that you keep keep describing. So, so then let's jump to the next one, um, which is uh, a larger project, Ferris in York, which is the project that you just mentioned you launched uh, last year, 22 carbon neutral apartments. Can you just talk us through exactly what that means? Yeah, for, for us in York, look, like for us in York is probably the culmination of 15 years worth of professional work for me um, and, you know, within Hit versus Hype, it's definitely the culmination of the past five years. It's it's going to be a pretty, pretty special building. Um, uh, it's actually an iteration of, of a building that we completed Nightingale 2 in Fairfield, which was an, a narrow, long site, about 40 metres long, about 11 and a half, 12 metres wide. And so it enables you to get a, 
a double-sided yet single-loaded apartment with an external corridor, which gives you natural light and ventilation to most rooms. Um, that's a really good aspect and, and you're getting that natural light cross-flow ventilation. So your, your energy efficiency, your, your um, external envelope performance can be, can be quite high from the get-go. Um, uh, so we have just kicked off construction with Ironside. The guys are building it for us at the moment. Um, and this idea of carbon neutrality in, in, in apartment buildings is really interesting, actually. We've, we haven't built a building with gas uh, for eight years um, now, so we've gone, we've gone electric um, for pretty much the, the past eight years. Um, and within the context of an apartment building going, going electric um, and utilising an embedded network to sign up to a green power deal, to sign the building up to a green power deal, means that you can take the operational phase of your building um, carbon neutral from day one, right? So you basically use the power of collective purchase to buy green power at a, at a lower rate than you could be buying just kind of standard off the shelf, um, any sort of power. Um, uh, you bog by it through the embedded network and then you lock in your operational phase carbon neutral. Okay, that's that's relatively easy to do um, in the context of the learning that we've developed over the last five, six years. Um, the, the embodied carbon component, which enables us to claim kind of carbon neutrality, um, uh, is has, has been a really interesting piece of learning for us. So um, actually undertaking a life cycle uh, analysis through design phase, understanding what materials are going into the building themselves, seeking to reduce embodied carbon where possible through that design process, um, buying local, um, you know, specifying things like local you know, local Victorian granite for bench tops as an example, so we're not pulling uh, marble out of Italy, um, you know, reducing kind of this concept of food miles, right, like material miles, um, reducing the, the carbon footprint of the actual materials in the building. So once you, you've gone through that process, you should have less carbon in your building um, and then you go through a process of, of offsetting that carbon, um, which has been a really big learning curve for us um, as a business. Um, we... we um, we certified our sustainability business through the federal government climate active pathway at the end of last year, which is something we're really proud of. Um, it's a bit of a uh, unregulated market, um, uh, the the carbon credit market at the moment. It's 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 a bit of a tough one. There's um, it's probably a really good example of of you know a few years ago when we had we had the rush to biofuels right, and and there was some perverse outcomes where. Uh, you ended up with huge monocultures, monoculture farms selling or just just creating uh, product in order to sell on the biofuel market, which which decimated kind of local biodiversity around the globe. Um, plenty of plenty of examples of that. Sort of the same things happening in the carbon credit market at the moment, where um, and it's actually something that people need to be really really careful with when they're when they're going down this pathway of seeking to offset, whether it be their businesses or their buildings or whatever it is. You got to be really careful what what credits you're buying because. Um, there can be some really perverse outcomes. So the climate active pathway is actually kind of has some safeguards in that certification pathway that makes sure you're only buying gold standard accredited carbon credits. Um, and examples of that might be, you know, a forest in Tasmania, um, might be an indigenous um, 
uh, land project in South Australia um, combined with a accredited wind project in Thailand, as an example, um, rather than perhaps a totally unregulated wind farm project in India, um, which, you know, yes, it's creating carbon credits, which are offsetting the, the broader global problem, but at the same time, it's sort of leading to perverse social outcomes on the ground in India that, 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 you know, most people would, would be wanting to avoid. Um, it's a really, really fascinating space, this one. It's kind of um, for a voluntary market. Um, it's really gathering some momentum. Very interesting. And so one of the big questions that we ask ourselves as developers um, is, you know, does the customer respond to all of this effort? Uh, and are buyers um, willing to pay whatever perceived premium or real premium exists there what's your read on that yeah it's the million dollar question right like it's a question that comes up the whole time um you know can a standard development project in the market go and go and slap a carbon neutral process on its project and command a higher price probably probably not right like can can a boutique scale project that's that's dedicated to ideas of sustainability and design over time speak to a niche market that understands quality and therefore is, uh, understands the notion of you, you, you get what you pay for, um, yes. Is, is there middle ground? Yeah, there is middle ground and there's, there's some really good examples out in the market of people kind of pursuing that middle ground pretty successfully. Um, I, I just think like if, if you forecast, if you look at it, over the last five years, you look at how quickly the industry's moved towards um, uh, and, and big players in the industry have moved towards broad-based broad support for sustainability principles within their organisations. You know, the, the momentum's there. So the momentum's already well and truly established. It's, it's, it's an exciting time. I think there's real value there. Now, um, we've got a little bit of time left. I'm, I'm just interested to get your views on uh, a couple of other things that sort of exist out there in the broader, mar in the broader marketplace. You, you guys were very closely involved in Nightingale um, and we've, sent, we've subsequently seen the evolution of, of collaborative housing, um, different models emerging, uh, different solutions, different you know, financial and business models. How do you see the evolution of of collaborative housing like that in Australia, and uh, and do you have any sort of views or comments on that? Yeah, look, we're involved um, from the get go in in Nightingale. We sort of helped to set up the feasibility um, on on the first Nightingale model project, and and ran that project through to kind of financial close. Um, at which point, the architects kind of took over, and the the rest is history. But um, I think. Development is really, really, really difficult. Um, and any, anybody, anybody that works as either a developer, development manager, project manager, builder, you know, in, in the delivery side of these projects understands sort of the broader complexity and, and the risk inherent to development. I think there's some broader notions of some nice ideas around what people might like to see that indicates to the development industry that, that that the consumer is interested in better quality outcomes. And I think, so for me, ideas like Nightingale and, 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 and say some of these, um, uh, you know, collaborative housing model projects talk to um, the kinds of uh, product that 
that more and more people want to see. Um, and I think the opportunity for the development industry is to respond to that um, rather than c- continuing to, you know, sail pretty close to the wind in a lot of examples, um, you know, that, that line between kind of just good enough <laughs> and profit maximisation. I think more and more people uh, are, are really interested and willing to pay for quality um, and for me, quality and sustainability go hand in hand, right? Um, they're, they're the same thing. Um, so, yeah, perhaps perhaps there's a bit of a message there. Um, I went on a study tour to Europe two years ago and, and to, I went to Vienna, Berlin and Zurich and, and went to check out a bunch of um, collaborative housing models, different styles, um, whether it be Bauer Group and or... Or, um, or different structures uh, as to how some of these projects are delivered. And, and on face value, you know, you, you see some of these projects being delivered and and, and I think there's, there's a broader idea that there's a significant number of these projects being delivered in Europe and that why aren't we doing more of them and et cetera, et cetera. But one, one thing that I came back with was that these projects are niche. There's not very many of them. Um and they've taken really, really long times, um, uh, long time frames through to delivery. So in some cases, 15 years, um, which is just not viable and it's not scalable, um, but they are bloody good projects. Um, and they provide some really, really interesting insight into what people want. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think, I think therein lies the message, um, you know, more broadly around where, where you know, the development industry can start to look. Now, I'm just interested now in your views on just the broader property market, and I know it's a very general general statement over the next sort of 12, 24 months. How are you envisioning your space, um, you know, boutique, residential scale, high-quality, sustainable owner-occupied stock? You've got your workspaces. You've got your sustainability practice. How are you assessing the next 12 to 24 months here in Australia? Uh, it's it's a confusing time. <laughs> Everything structurally points towards uh, the you know the, the broader idea that things definitely shouldn't be going as well as they are. But you know, down here in Victoria, especially, I think we've got a stamp duty discount combined with cheap money and and an incredibly emotional market that that's kind of pretty hot. Um, look, I think. For us, more broadly, at a boutique scale, there's there's plenty of equity in the market, um, particularly in the areas in which we're we're operating, um, and uh, there's a real real lack of supply. Um, so I think we're we're pretty bullish on on the space we're operating in. I think you know quality again, boutique scale, owner occupier focused, um, and continuing to innovate. Uh, in sustainability, we're we're big believers in um, this broader notion of trying to be, stay true to fundamentals. Because I think, you know, if you look at the timeframes within which development projects operate, four years, five years long, even even twenty two apartments, right? It's the better part of four four and a half years. Um, so if you're responding to trends within a, you know, within the context of a project that might take you four years, I think like you kind of, there's more chance of getting caught out, right? But if you're focused on fundamentals, on on value, then perhaps that creates a little bit more resilience 
um, for your projects. Um, you know, as the inevitable cycles of the market play out, um, you, you've just you've just got a little bit more kind of um, resilience, robustness to to your structure, and that can carry you through. Liam, I really appreciate your your time, your generosity, your outlook uh, for the property industry the work that you do. Uh, we're going to continue to, to follow you guys closely. Um, I'm sure it's not the last time we'll be talking over the next uh, uh, next couple of years. Um, keep us posted with all your movements. Um, good luck out there and uh, thank you very much for your time.